0: Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning into this episode of the Connecticut Certification Board's podcast, Scope of Practice, where we really strive to address topics often overlooked, underappreciated, or just not widely known by SUD professionals. If you're a returning listener, welcome you back. If you're a first-time listener, we hope you continue to join us. We're excited as we launch our fourth season today with some thought-provoking and perhaps uncomfortable conversations. In an industry where health, well-being, and even lives of vulnerable individuals are at risk, regardless of their demographic details, safety for the practitioner lies in the protective cocoon of the status status quo, and to champion new ideas is to put oneself in the crosshairs of those who cling tightly to the myths of an antiquated system whose interest is in self-preservation, not client outcomes. Those who don't attain the predetermined goals of the provider through an often inflexible process have all the onus placed on their shoulders with alarmingly little introspection by the system to see our own failure to serve in a way that takes in the individuality of those seeking services into account. We speak of meeting clients where they are at, but our common reality is that we expect the clients to meet us where we are at. What is more stigmatizing? than telling clients they're not successful when they don't meet our goals. Our guests today are professionals who wish to share their ideas about challenging the way things are with an eye towards what they could be. I consider them to be true thought leaders for among other reasons, the ability to ask tough questions and the willingness to have those difficult conversations to find truth, whether it fits their opinions or not. They recognize that in the words of the American writer of the earliest early 20th century, Frank Howard Clark, we find comfort amongst those who agree with us and growth amongst those who don't. Jamelia Hand is a consultant, author, speaker, trainer, and substance use disorders treatment advocate who served as Bureau bureau Chief for the Illinois Department of Human Services. She currently serves as the Vice President of Reentry Services for the Safer Foundation and as the CEO of Vantage Clinical Counseling, LLC, where she provides strategic direction and training to healthcare organizations on opioid-related topics. In her 20 years of service to the substance use uh, disorders and mental health fields, Jamelia has earned the reputation of being an impactful thought leader, advocate, influencer, and strategic change agent. Kapil Nayar, native to Philadelphia, is a licensed professional counselor with a forte in substance use disorder treatment. When it comes to addiction treatment, Kapil has worked within the field in various nonprofit and for-profit treatment centers and currently still practices in a private practice setting. He has been a source for grand jury investigations in the tri-state area, rippling into various parts of the country, including Florida. Kapil has been a force for patient advocacy, social justice, citing research and information to hold corrupt, fraudulent treatment facilities accountable. He has also pr- participated with local and national reporting agencies, both inside and outside of the counseling field across the country, working closely with advocates who came before him. I welcome both of you to the podcast, and in u- lieu of my usual question and answer format, uh, I'd like to simply have a conversation about what you both wish to share, because I think that would be much more uh organic process, and would lead to better discussion. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you
0: for having us. Um, Cap, this is your third time on the podcast.
2: It is, yes. I was just thinking about, about how far we've come. <laughs> <laughs> right? no so, something. <laughs> uh,
0: with that, you've had your air time on here for us to start, so I'm going to let Jamelia start with, with what she had expressed to us earlier uh, in the week. Uh, about what you wanted to talk about. Julia, jump on in. Well,
1: well, can do. And first off, it is an absolute pleasure to see both of you in person. Um, you know, we've been connected for probably more years than we would believe. And this time is is I, I've just been really looking forward to it. Um, first off, I, I really like the name of I di- I didn't know if it was the name of the podcast or the name of this episode the whole idea about upsetting the apple cart. Um, I think that when I was growing up on the South side of Chicago within the public school system, I heard this phrase quite a bit. Um, And culturally, like many black families, disruptive behavior or disproving, especially with an adult, was seen as pretty disrespectful. So children um, who grew up during the generation I did Uh, we tended to be less disruptive than those that we see today. Conversely, when I was growing up, I was considered disruptive because I asked a lot of questions. To date, I still love asking questions and I do it respectfully. Um, But in the past, it didn't always go over so well. So I really look forward to this conversation so that we can get more into it. Uh, specifically in our fields of substance use disorders and mental
0: health. Do you think that asking questions mm-hmm. um, is more difficult for people to handle than accusations? Like a former podcast guest, Dr. Mark Willenbring, had said, we need to really take a, a, a bulldozer to the field and start from scratch. Uh, mm-hmm. And people were able to push that off because it was so outlandish, although not inaccurate. But yes. do you think people respond differently or or when you ask a question? Is it
1: more difficult? Yes. Oh, I I I believe that people, most people, most people are very open to questions. Um, I do think that, you know, generationally and culturally, uh, depending on, you know, those filters, may sometimes have people to imply that someone is not is not having the the uh the the right amount of respect, and I'll give you an example of that. A play, so uh, something that I just really, I, I I hate to admit publicly, but I want the listeners and and for us to learn from my mistakes. Uh, when I was early in my field of counseling, I had a client. I was in my early twenties, and I had a client who was in her late fifties, and she come in with her husband, who was a pastor. Uh, I remember this as as though it was yesterday. Uh, she'd had maybe a 20-year history of, of uh, opiate use disorder. She also uh, struggled with alcohol. Uh, she smoked marijuana from time to time. But she was the most gregarious woman. She came in with this this beaming personality. She was very loud and outgoing, and I just adored her. But on the way to the office, once we got in the office and we sat down, And I pulled out this big binder of forms that we had to fill out. And I started asking questions. I asked, you know, about her childhood. I asked about her sexual history. I asked about her family. And at one point she said, wait a second, you don't know me like that. And very quickly, I remembered that I didn't. And even though with all of the behaviors that brought her to counseling, she needed my help it was wrong for me as her junior to pose those questions. So in thinking about, you know, how to structure a question uh, specific to your audience, how to make sure that you're being respectful, that you're honoring the person that is before you. I think that if you do all of those things, a question can be interpreted in a way that you'll get the results that you're seeking.
0: Yeah, it's about building that therapeutic relationship and understanding how different people communicate and and not kind of uh, Mm -hmm. just doing a simple cut and paste in interviews.
1: Yes, and and being culturally informed. You know, she was a Black woman, but still, my culture demanded that I submit to her as my elder. But that's another podcast. (laughs) So you were, and
0: one of the things that you expressed to us is that mm-hmm. um about individuals starting their own organizations uh, yes, about yes, how, yes. you know kind of your thoughts about
1: that and and where <laughs> you would go uh, do you want to talk about that a bit? Uh sure. So my I guess overarching theme is I believe we need as many treatment options and approaches as we have people who are suffering. Um when I Oversaw treatment in Illinois. One of the things that I noticed very, very early on is that we had these really big providers, and then we had a lot of mom and pop operations. So it was 20% to 80%. Either they were huge or they were very, very small. And with the smaller organizations, I learned also that they didn't understand the difference between the addiction business and the business of addiction. Uh, The addiction business is basically the services that are provided, uh, the models of care, the treatment approaches, uh, the case management, the referrals. But the business of addiction is the understanding the funding, understanding the policies, how we advocate for each other, you know, how we market those services, how we remain in compliance, everything that's required to keep the doors open and very few mom and pop organizations uh, look into what is needed to sustain the business of treatment. They get into it because they want to help. However, without knowing these things, without understanding the business of addiction, they end up closing or they end up failing to provide uh, evidence based uh, quality care that people deserve. Um, so some people should not actually be in, in the business. The fact that they want to help, it should be much bigger than that. They should also appreciate the business of the work that they're doing.
0: You know, I'm appreciative that you say that because I <laughs> see that all the time. Um, and in many cases, you see people enter their field because <laughs> they want to promote whatever route. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they found recovery through um Absolutely. and that doesn't always work that way and they don't understand like you said the business aspect and the mm-hmm. the regulatory and all of the things that are really important mm-hmm. um and uh and Capil, you've seen this as well when we look at Organizations don't hire people with a background in running organizations (laughs) to lead. They hire the best clinician, somebody with a great experience of that, and and you have to learn on the fly uh, how to lead.
2: Hundred percent. I think um, from the top down, there's a systemic theme of like an altruistic guise that can often be manipulated, and that goes into the business aspects of it. Um, And I think that's where the corruption kind of exists and um, kind of going on with everything that you all have brought forward so far is you know we can't no, we can no longer accept what is the current norm of care just because we don't have another option just yet. Um, and I think that goes into the main motif of everything that we're talking about is we need to be asking these questions to these systemic folks that are running the show and kind of orchestrating what current exists. Uh, And so kind of coming full circle here, I think it's, it's our purpose essentially to ask why, why do these things exist? What is their purpose? What purpose do they serve and for what gain? Uh, And looking at that, you know, and scrutinizing it, who's gaining from here? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it seems like every person from every political hemisphere uh, is participating and throwing money at this problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But the money is not really, changing anything. We're still doing the same cyclical five or six things. Um, you know, I was reading an article from the the White House just recently that was talking about uh, three hundred and eighty four billion dollars were thrown into the mm-hmm. mental health market. Um, I'm sorry, it was two hundred and eighty billions were spent on mental health in twenty two uh, and the global mental health market is valued currently at mm-hmm. three hundred and eighty four billion dollars currently. Um, and there's an estimated reach of 580. Oh, sorry, 538 billion by 2030, and I think that is quite alarming uh, because it goes back to everything that we're talking about as far as the altruistic gain mm-hmm. and lack of oversight with regards to some of these facilities. Because dam operations can happen with little to no issues at this point.
0: You said something that I first heard. Mid 90s, when I was in social work school, a myth of altruism, altruistic myth. Mm-hmm. And I had a, I'll never forget his name, I had a, a community organizing professor, Julius Newman, who said true altruism does not exist because we do things because we have a self interest. And we have to accept that self interest is okay once we recognize what it is. Wanting to help and getting the good feelings mm-hmm. from helping people is a self interest, and that's okay. Um, But let's not Mm -hmm. pretend it doesn't exist and we're doing something always for somebody else altruistically. He said that doesn't exist. And until you said that, I haven't heard that before. And Jamilia, people that start programs or start agencies to do things, really, they have an altruistic bend, Mm -hmm. but sometimes don't understand what their own self-interest is um, Mm -hmm. to help them be successful.
1: Absolutely so i can't think of one person so part part of part of my previous role uh in in licensing treatment centers we do an interview and one of the questions that i would ask was well why you know why do you want to start this treatment center you know what are you seeing in your community how do you want to help uh you know, just very general questions so that we were able to get an idea of why this person wanted to enter into the business. And for the most part, it's for the reasons that we've mentioned thus far. People want to help. However, they have not really taken the opportunity to research what it is they want to be helpful, uh, they they haven't researched the ways that they want to be helpful. And one of the other things that I've noticed is that we desperately need to improve our collection of reliable data or even consider partnering with organizations or products who can assist us in the data collection process. Um, we often think that we're limited to just what we have to accomplish something but really we can partner with other people who can do things and do things well and share information with us. Um, We we need to get over the fact that we don't need the research and that the data is not applicable and that other people can't benefit from the data and information that, that we have or that we go out of our way to capture and monitor and track. Um, so I, I think it's it's a it's a data issue. It's a data issue in part. How do we know we're helping unless we have data to prove it?
0: The single state agency, a former single state agency director here in Connecticut, used to say that. Um, Don't ask me for income if you can't show me your output. So what does your <laughs> outcome data say before? Yeah. And so it was to kind of help save money and. And channel it to the organizations that are showing to be effective. Although mm-hmm. the, I still think how the data we collect is questionable as well. Yeah. Uh, we don't. We don't necessarily know what data is
2: important. Yes. I. I can't not jump in here. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's absolutely free. true because uh, there's so much. There's so many issues with regards to reliability, credibility, mm-hmm. and like being able to replicate the outcome measures from any institution Um, and so there needs to be like stricter regimen when it comes to how Mm -hmm. we're evaluating these things because it's so subjective I mean working in treatment Mm
0: -hmm.
2: you see these folks leaving treatment but as far as outcome measures are concerned um, you know there there really are no measurements Um, it's completely subjective most of these are phone screens um, and you know all types of manipulation happen with regards to the data that's being pulled in. uh, Mm -hmm. And you have inherent bias, you have implicit bias, you have all types of credibility issues throughout, which makes the the data from an institution meaningless. Um, And so to Jamelia's point, having someone external third party that is reputable, that is reliable, that can Mm -hmm. actually do the investigatory work and publicize it appropriately Mm -hmm. uh, with no funding gain, no secondary Mm -hmm. gains happening there, is exactly what we need at this point. Um, because the bodies that exist currently have been defunded. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's it's it it puts us in this realm of we're in this cycle and there's no oversight and we can't actually see what's working and what's not.
1: Absolutely. Uh, great point. Great, great points. Um, you know, ad- additionally, we also need to consider some of those areas that we can mine data from. Um, You know, for example, data is hiding in a number of places that we don't even consider. Uh, Audits provide unbiased data, provides reliable data. You know, we can look to audits and really get the story of what's happening around an organization and within client services or patient services, um, funding applications. You know, some of the contracts, Uh, we can even look at organizational uh, calendars to really determine where an organization spends a majority of their time and where they're actually doing business, especially when the business or the service doesn't connect directly to the patient or the client. And we can use this information to really paint an accurate picture and inform us of uh, how to improve uh, business best practices. So thank you for raising the point of uh, why we need reliable data and who can give us that information. A couple of things jump
0: to mind, and, and one is uh, that those who do provide the oversight that we have or claim to, the Joint Commission, CARF, etc., outcomes are not a part are not on their radar. I talked to a, a CARF surveyor who said that, oh, we ask, do they have a way to reach out and do a 30-day check-in and all, but they don't look at outcomes. Um, and I know that when you look at the other groups that are involved in this, um, you know, shadow-proof lists, these are best practices, somebody should be followed to be approved by us. But none of that is outcome measurement. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, and that troubles me. And I think a part of that comes from Being slaves to our history, Uh we have been a a field of tradition and word of mouth, not of policies and procedures and Uh hard data and things like that. Um, And we've determined for our clients what is success for them instead of the other way around. Uh, 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 NIDA suggests that 72% of organizations around the country that, that work with SUDs are 12-step focused. Well, 12 step were never designed to be treatment. Yes. Countless people have found recovery from 12-steps because they chose it. Mm-hmm. Um. I just, are, are we going to be, move away from our history and challenge things? And if we do, mm-hmm. we become part, you know, in the crosshairs of those who are, are committed to the status quo. Yes,
1: this is It's quite the conundrum, honestly. And I I think that instead of focusing on on who, and if we think about it, you know, regulatory and, and accrediting organizations, if we think about what their role is, their role is not to necessarily determine how treatment is delivered. And if we actually subscribe to individualized care, then, again, we would need as many models as we have people who are suffering because we basically have to start from scratch with each patient and client. Um, But one of the things that we definitely need to do is is more partnership. We need to partner with people who are getting, getting things done, people who are having some successes, but in going back to your previous point about uh, altruism, and it makes me think about humility and being in the helping professions does not always encourage us to speak out loudly about how we're making a difference. You know, it, it doesn't feel good to a lot of organizations, but when they don't speak out and they don't they don't share what's working with other people, then other people can't give that a shot. You know, funders can't say, well, you know what, I see that's working. You've provided evidence that that's working. You know, what if we do a pilot and invest here to see how well we can do this across other organizations? You know, we we just need to speak out a whole lot more about what we're doing that's working.
2: I couldn't agree more with that point. I think um, it's kind of a paradox that we exist in with all these name brand JCO CARF accreditors, <laughs> um, because it's they're working to homogenize the care with, with no thought or like checks and balances, if you will, with regards to the care that's actually being delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're we're working in this realm of yes, we're all doing the same exact things mm-hmm. because we have this stamp of approval that we can have on our brochures, seeing that the joint commissioner CARF has, you know, made us reputable essentially. Um, and it's it's even mo- more curious to your point, Amelia, with regards to when they go to tap the shoulder of funders, mm-hmm. it's almost as if that exchange is a monetary conversation as opposed to an outcome study. Um, because the data is there. If we just look at recidivism rates for these individuals that are in and out of care, that in itself is data that could be used to deem efficacy with regards to whatever joint accreditation or CARF is, is giving their sign of approval for as far as providers concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the conundrum really is: Why is the system the way it is, mm-hmm. and why do we keep letting this happen? Right? You know what I mean. I think it it just comes back to your point, uh, Jeffrey, with regards to you know why are we just sitting here dormant, allowing for the cycle to just continue to metastasize in a situation where there's so many individuals that are in dire need of care, and mm-hmm. there's limited amounts of providers, you know, in our current state of affairs. Mm-hmm but then also there's no oversight to the providers to be able to provide efficacious care. So it's Mm -hmm. like the quadruple whammy, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. To look at the data of, (laughs) excuse me, of why people, why we see recidivism in the system would defeat the whole purpose of the system. What we do is as a, an industry is just complete recycle the same individuals in the back and forth you know it's a self-fulfilling uh, system that because we're not providing the services that allow somebody to be mm-hmm. live in the most independent way possible and have their life it's designed to
2: bring people back mm-hmm. yeah Yeah. go ahead Gina, sorry.
1: I'm i'm with you i'm sure we're on the same page go ahead
2: no, I was just going to say, and then, and then, with that said, it almost is this um, internal strife because as a provider, we want to offer efficacious care, but when we see, mm-hmm. you know, the powers that be tell us to provide the same monotonous, uh, like offerings, essentially, mm-hmm. um, we don't stand up and speak up. We continue riding the wave. So it's almost as if we're part of the system indirectly. Um, and that's where asking the questions comes in and that's where we need to go to the powers that be and ask these really difficult questions. And if they can't give us the answer, if they give us the runaround, we have to have something, right? We go to those specific folks and ask even more questions. Um, because without that, I mean, what is the point of existing if we just exist in this vortex of continuing the cycle? Like what's our next progeny going to be looking at? Um, and that's the fear, you know what I mean? I think the powers that be understand the system that this is a money making endeavor uh, and i you know with the statistics itself it's coming straight from the white house that there's an estimated reach to have mental health care market be valued at 538 billion dollars by 2030 that was the reason why i pulled this debt. it's alarming um, and so it becomes clear as day that it's interest in money making at some points as opposed to that altruism that we're talking about before
0: I think we've seen, we're starting to see a little bit of how asking questions can lead to change, although it's often uncomfortable mm-hmm. for the receiver of the question, in terms of the change of the legislation around um, doctor, private practice, doctor prescribed methadone. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you saw, the loudest voice people asked questions, it was like, hey, is this worked? Less restrictions worked during covid Let's yeah. try it this way. Let's look at that way. And there were I think it was informed legislation, but you still had the loud voice of A Todd say, wanting to protect the status quo, saying no, it has to go through an OTP for this reason, uh, and it was for their own benefit, not necessarily for the benefit of of any individual who can use uh, methadone to support their recovery. There's still going to be a place for people to use OTPs but there are many who don't need that, that level of care. And the truth is the truth, no matter what you say about
2: it. I, it's just a, go ahead, sorry. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about early, very early in my career and even, you know, and I guess I ask you all to do the same to just reflect on early in your career, you know, you really wanted to just get out there and change the world. You wanted to save the world. And at some point you ran into some bureaucracy and you saw things that were being done that either went against, you know, something you embraced morally, or you felt like it wasn't good business and you were upset about it and you spoke up about it and nothing happened. And so you got even more, you know, bothered. Um, But you were at a place where you had to uh, provide for your family and take care of your home and you weren't able to walk away uh, and you didn't know what you could do. Right. So way back when um, I determined that I did not want to sit by. And I created a strategy for myself and how I wanted to operate in the field, and I committed to that. And I coined that term, the the workaround, basically, <laughs> uh, because I've seen so many of of treatment providers, so many of us as treatment providers and organizations get caught up in the frustrations of the bureaucracy or bureaucracies, you know, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's a drug war or you know the pushback against safe consumption sites, whether it's unfunded barriers like uh, housing, training and employment, whatever it is, we as individuals, we can work to implement change and we can start small. And we have to remember that. Um, one of the questions that I asked myself was, what is the smallest increment of change that I can make as a counselor? Uh, to improve how drug and alcohol treatment was delivered right now. And where I started was with physicians who were prescribing buprenorphine on an outpatient basis. There were only a handful of them at the time. There were a total of five in Illinois at that time before I started working directly in that business. And I called them and I said, listen, uh, I need you to make a choice between these four dates. I gave them all four dates and I said, on this date, I'm coming over to educate your staff about the clinical approach to addiction treatment. And this is information that I plan to share. This is how much time I need, and I'll bring over some snacks. All of them agreed. Every last one of them agreed, and they appreciated. And so, what we ended up doing was building that bridge between clinical and medical care. Uh, We began aligning our interests. And over time we ended up working in concert with each other and people were actually getting better. Now, is that workflow or protocol written somewhere? No, it just started with, you know, someone wanting to make a change and creating a a strategy to do that. So I think we just might have to go back to scratch on all of this and start with us and think about how we can make change today and work with partners like us to ensure that we're we're going to be successful in doing that
0: i, I just wrote had an article published that just came out yesterday um in counselor magazine about mm-hmm. looking at how uh radical advocacy uh for HIV treatment and for the gay community really changed things um, and that we should learn some. We need to have our own, find our own Harvey Milk. We need to find our own uh, individuals who are going to take the chance. But what you just said about partnerships are what did it. And Dr. Fauci actually talks about this, saying while he was doing in his role making incremental changes because that's all he could do in a Mm -hmm. bureaucracy. He could make incremental changes. He had Larry Kramer screaming about not making enough changes and the system stinks. And it was their shtick. They worked together on that. Mm -hmm. And Fauci understood he had his role, but he needed somebody to keep the pressure on to do what he couldn't do. And he couldn't speak out, but Larry could. And it looked like it was a... uh, uh, an argument, but they were really on the same side and they worked it out. And I yeah. think that we need to do that. The people that can make incremental change need to make those changes. And those of us who can speak out, and I consider myself privileged enough that I can can speak out because uh-huh. so many cannot, yes, um, that I can still push for more and more. I can upset that apple cart. Thank
2: you. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. And I, mean, I think you this- can as well. Obviously, Indeed. definitely, yeah. I think this is actually a social justice thing. It's 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 a permeating motif. It feels like because I mean, if we look at our current system, it's almost as if it's cropping the same problem uh, for the next generation and and mm-hmm. proliferating this crop of a of of another issue. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for me, I I fully agree with you, Jamelia. I think it is, what, what what small change can we make to be able to make some sort of impactful momentum in some sort of direction? And I think there's this synchronous organicness that mm-hmm. just unravels and this roadmap just comes to fruition where you get connected to the right people, you get corrected to the right authoritative bodies and you actually can spark change as one person with one idea that is willing to stand up. And I think to Jeff, to your point with regards to having that courage, that little spark Mm -hmm. to actually do something, that's what it's, it's so imperative to have that courage to actually do something.
0: Indeed. And 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 I think the only reason I have that is because of the relationships I have with other people. (laughs) Um, That it's supportive and I get information and they challenge me. Um, and, and, you know, it's something that we all experience. So this is not about a trait that I possess. This is about relationship.
1: <laughs> yes, they're so important. So, so important. Um, and listening to both of you, I, I think uh, I, I think a perfect example of this is, you know, Michael Jordan, who we all have well, m- many of us consider to be the greatest athlete of of our generation. Um, However, when he first joined the NBA, um, he didn't win a championship for his first six years. And it wasn't because he wasn't good. We knew he was very good um, even at that point, but it was because he needed support. Um, So later after, you know, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Mm -hmm. Rodman and others were added, you know, the team could really leverage the collective talent versus the individual talent of Michael Jordan himself and relying on that. And as you all mentioned, we we just really need to do more of that. We need to rely on each other. I think all of us are a Michael Jordan at something or some piece of this you know, battle that we're engaged in. And if all of us do our part, we can certainly enhance the outcome for clients and patients all over the, the globe.
0: Very well said. Although he didn't win championships his first couple of years because of somebody named Larry Joe Bird.
2: (laughs) Listen, I didn't
1: want to say anything. I didn't didn't mention the the, the Pistons, the Lakers. Oh, I I wouldn't mention
0: them either. (laughs) So just as we get close to, to finishing up, if you could have one New Year's resolution, for the field yes what would it be cap you want to start off with that put you on the gun first
2: yeah sure i mean uh it goes back to my motif like everything that um everything that i'm trying to practice is what i'm going to say right now and that is stand with integrity um if you see something say something um which is curious for a minority person to say that out loud but be sure to speak out against fraud um, because if we don't, especially fraud, waste, abuse, corruption, if we don't, we're just proliferating the cycle. And think about your kids, think about your progeny, think about the future of society. Um, and that sounds more macro, but it really does genuinely start with just one right a- action. Uh, and so, my resolution for all of us in the field is to just keep doing that one right thing every single day. There is a butterfly effect.
1: Absolutely, hundred percent. Oh, Cap! How can I top that? That is beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful, and I subscribe to that and love it so much. Thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll keep with the theme, um, and I'll say, you know, speak up, part two. Um, as as I mentioned earlier, the the helping professions and and helpers, you know, we we feel uncomfortable with speaking, you know, publicly about our wins. But it is of paramount importance that we do so. If I had one resolution, it would be for us to speak up and and share. You know, we're humble, but humility does not get funded because funders can't fund what they don't know about and what we can't prove. So um, I've seen personally, personally, uh, many many wonderful things happening in treatment, many innovations. Uh, but we're not tracking those things. We're not monitoring those things. And we're definitely not speaking publicly about those things. Um, but again, it's only when we do speak up that others can you know, support us. They can get involved with us. They can fund our evidence-based ideas. So my New Year's resolution is that we speak up more, speak up for the right things, and speak up to be noticed and be heard so that we can get what we need to win this, this uh, battle.
0: And, and I appreciate that as well. Uh, that's a very nice follow-up to it and and added something to the conversation. And when I look at a New Year's resolution, to me, I look much more introspectively for the mm-hmm. field and I say, be informed. If you like something, understand why you like it, why it works for you. If you don't like something, at least understand the problem so you can tell me why you don't like it. Mm. Like, well, I'm against this this legislation to increase access to methadone because of this. Well, really, what what do you know about it to make that decision? That's make informed decisions. And I think we're we're yes. use our wise mind as they as I used to say when I did DBT treatment. Use your wise mind, not your um. emotional. Yes. Yes. Well, Cap and Jamilia, I thank you both very much for joining me today and and for making uh, talking about how we can all make the system better. And and um, the quote um, from an American uh, playwright says, "Why not upset the apple cart? If you don't, the apples will rot anyway." Oh, I
1: love that. Send that to me. I love yes,
0: it. it. <laughs> I will. I will gladly send that to you. So as we finish up, I want to again thank our guests. Um, this is our first podcast for 2024, our fourth season. So I'm very happy that we're able to continue. Um, <laughs> when this was just an idea, I actually discussed it with Kapil and he kind of guided yeah. me in the right direction. So uh, jamil you're right. We go back farther than I think any of us want. to <laughs> <laughs> well, So thank you both. And uh, we appreciate everyone who listens and we'll catch you next time.
1: Yeah, happy holiday. Happy New Year to both of you. I New Year to
0: you as well. Can't I wait
2: to see what
1: we doing. do.